This is episode 108 of Alohomora for November 1st, 2014. Welcome back, listeners, to our global reread of Harry Potter. I'm Michael Harley. I'm Kat Miller. I'm Rosie Morris. And I'm Eric Skull. <laughs> wow, a host show. We haven't had one of these in a while. <laughs> it's been a long time. <laughs> it's kind of nice just to, I mean, not that I don't like talking to the listeners. It's just kind of nice to get all of us, well, almost all of us here. It's nice. Yeah. Such an amazing chapter, too. It's yes. a big one. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I think Rosie and I are on the same page here. <laughs> I have to admit that if there is one chapter in the whole of Harry Potter that I have skipped reading on multiple occasions, this is the one. Like, I read, I read up to the point where they go down to the Quidditch match, and then I kind of just skip Grawl, which is bad. But I'm just not very interested. <laughs> Would you rather it didn't exist at all? I just, it's just a bit. Why is it there? What's important about it? Not oh. a lot. Oh, we'll Sorry. get to that. <laughs> okay. Michael's got plans, everybody. <laughs> <laughs> Although, you know, I may not be so far from the same page as you guys are about <laughs> this chapter, which, of course, listeners, is, in fact, chapter 30 of Order of the Phoenix, titled Grop, which we ask you to please read before journeying further into this episode so you get the full experience of the discussion. But as usual, before we head into the new chapter, we are going to discuss last week's chapter, which was chapter 29 of Harry Potter and the Order of the Phoenix. Our first comment here from the main site from KCL says, I don't think you guys were completely fair about Harry's or qualifications in this episode. It's not just that he kills Voldemort using Expelliarmus. He appears to consistently be one of the top students in Azure at DADA, if not the best. He fights off Voldemort four times during his Hogwarts years, five if you count his encounter in this book. This year, he is teaching other students defensive spells as part of Dumbledore's army, and as we see time and time again, he is not an unintelligent student by any means. See the moment in Deathly Hallows where he realizes he needs to talk to someone who's dead to learn about Ravenclaw's diadem, just as one example. Even if he had gone the traditional route and gotten his newts, graduated and gone through the extra three years of training, I think ha Harry had what it took to successfully become an Auror. So this stemmed from a discussion we had last week mm. about, um, since the last chapter was career advice, about um, how Harry actually did become an Auror because we know he didn't go back to Hogwarts and did he basically just say on his form, defeated the Dark Lord? And they, you know. So, yeah, pretty much. What do you guys think? Hmm. Uh, I go back, because and this, this discussion really comes, I think, from the part in the last chapter where McGonagall summarizes exactly what is needed to be an Auror. And my, is that a lot of things that Harry is not particularly good at? <laughs> yes. <laughs> and yes. she, and she even points out what his, where his grades need to pick up. Um, and you know, we, we know that Harry actually kind of rises to that challenge in half blood in some classes, not from his own talent. Mm. Um, 
<laughs> but which which to me is, you know, I guess somebody could argue that oh yeah, Harry uses his resources with the Half-Blood Prince's book and I'm like, yeah, he steals from them, but if you asked him to make a potion competently on his own, could he do He'd it? Just go and grab a beetle. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. For everything. I mean, yeah. he he might have actually learned some real tips that he's going to remember from that book. Maybe. Oh yeah. But he's not got the kind of natural flair. No, but not then, at all. Do you really need everything that McGonagall listed to be a confident aura? I mean, I we like, know that Tonks yeah. is an aura, and she's definitely not particularly skilled in some areas that she probably needs mm, to be. Yeah, that's. But she's kind of like the underdog, right? She's kind of like the nobody. There can't be two of her at any one time. Although I guess <laughs> there wouldn't need to be. Um, I feel like she passed on the metamorphosis stuff. Yeah, alone. Like, I think that probably boosted her score a lot with them because yeah. that's a really since that's such a rare genetic gift, mm-hmm. they probably want that on their side. But um, in that case, then Harry's DADA skills can boost that side of his resume. Maybe. He is very good at it. He does teach other students. He has, you know, he's got the leadership skills and the fighting skills to be able to look after himself and others. I think it's um, I think it's worth actually asking at the end of um, book seven when we get there, like, is Harry a competent wizard? Um, you know, we said this last week, and this is what this user, uh, or sorry, this listener um, has written in and said, oh yeah, you know, we, we said he killed Voldemort using Spelliarmus. Well, he does. And <laughs> <laughs> like, there's no beating around the bush here. I believe strongly that in the end, the only reason that Harry uh, did defeat Voldemort was an inside advantage. And mm-hmm. it's not an advantage that he's likely to share with any other dark wizard he ever encounters. So. <laughs> Hermione! Oh, and yeah. friends. Friends helped <laughs> a lot. Right. But he is also very capable. He did yes. manage to get his corporeal Patronus in third year, which is something that he wouldn't even be able to do by seventh year. Yeah, That's and like I mean, look at how... Look, I mean, he had great training that one year. Um, <laughs> but and, and, and he'll probably have the best training available, you know, to become an Auror. So there is that. Yeah. Um, but, I mean, his father was such an accomplished wizard with everything that he and his friends had done uh, that it's really not shocking that Harry does have some degree of things coming easily for him or to him uh, skill-wise. Well, and- and um, the book w- before the epilogue in Deathly Hallows, the book ends in uh, nineteen ninety eight, right? Mm-hmm. So he took nine years from that point to rise to head of the Auror office because he became head of the Auror office in two thousand seven. Oh God! Did Joe make him head of the Auror office? Yeah, he yeah. rose to the head of the department I'm in two thousand seven. So that makes everything worse. <laughs> so he so he, he's the head of the he, office he is yeah. but it took him nine years so i guess there's something to be said for that he yeah all the veterans was... were probably dead <laughs> that's probably true to some degree a lot of people did die in the battle so and i know yeah. kingsley was trying to kind of fill in some gaps at the ministry well i feel like we could talk about this forever and i think it's probably a good idea to like eric said re-examine it at the end of deathly hallows that's a good mm. that's a good point, I think. Um, and so moving on to our next comment here from the forums from Holly Claire. It's quite a long one, so please bear with me here. As someone who has been on both ends of the social scale oh, 
I should say that this is in reference to the conversation we had about whether you sympathize with um, James and Sirius or Snape and why. Okay. As someone who has been on both ends of the social scale, I can honestly say that I have never found it easy to feel sympathy for Snape and still cannot to this day. I spent the early part of my high school years being physically and verbally abused by my classmates, both male and female. I later moved to a different state where I changed a lot physically and came back to the same school only to be miraculously welcomed into the fold of the upper crust of my grade. I, unlike Snape, had a large group of friends who stuck by me through the tough years and who remained my closest friends despite suddenly having people in the popular group calling me a friend as well. I was, in later years, considered a cool kid, though I never really thought of myself that way. Somehow I never found myself in the middle ground like lots of our hosts did. The years that I spent being bullied never made me a bad person, and I'm still nice to the people who used to torment me because that's just who I am. I know other people who went through similar experiences who would never dream of retaliating the same cruel behavior or even attitude towards the people who tormented them, let alone those people's children. What I mean to say is this. Because I've been on both sides, I can see how those who are blind to their own cruel behavior might think that Harry and Snape are being harsh on James because there is a certain standard set for the masculine leaders in large social groups that, occasionally, they have to show their control over others, frequently those much too weak to fight back in order to maintain their high status. But I also know that despite being bullied myself, I would never, ever treat the children of my tormentors with disrespect or malice just because of the way their parents, or singular parent, behaved towards me, the way Snape immediately does with Harry in book one. Hmm. That's, wow. Uh, well, because I think the the end of the comment is also talking about sympathizing with Snape as an adult, mm-hmm. which I don't. Right. <laughs> no, no. Yeah, because yeah. like you can you can sympathize with his like him as a kid who's experiencing this mm-hmm. without. I mean, but like, kind of close yourself off for what he becomes. Like the issue is too that he has all these issues with James that never get resolved because James dies, and that's mm-hmm. why he's still. I mean, that's partially like he never quite dealt with that, and you know the fact of what happened with Lily, and that's why he takes it out on Harry. I'm not saying it's good. It's by no means good. I think everybody agrees it's not. Um, I don't think that Snape takes it out on Harry because of the tormentor aspect. Harry is a permanent reminder. He looks like James, but with Lily's eyes. That idea that he is a permanent reminder of the thing that Snape lost while he was a kid, like in in the form of Lily, as, as well as the fact that he lost her to the person who was tormenting him. It's that aspect that makes him pick on Harry. So all the japes that Snape makes about Harry thinking he's cool and all that, and the arrogance and everything. It all comes, yeah, it does all come back to his childhood experiences, but it's not solely, like, it's not just because he was bullied. Oh, okay. Like, the Lily aspect comes in there as well, I Mm. think, anyway. Yeah, Um, I, I see that. But... I don't know, yeah, I agree that you can feel sympathy for Snape as a, a child, like, separately from him as an adult. Mm-hmm. Um, no, I, well, because I, I, I definitely say that because, and a lot of people point this out in this chapter, but the 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 attack on Snape in the memory is unprovoked. Mm-hmm. Um, it, yeah. it, James just does it because he's bored. 
And we get some kind of reasoning later from Sirius and Remus that Snape is actually kind of a jerk and he's just not seen as such in that particular memory. Mm-hmm. Um, so, but, but there's, there's this whole thing that continues from the, that, that point forward where we don't really see a lot of Snape back then, um, versus the one time we get to see James back then. And that's what we get. Um, right. so it's, it's, there's, there's, there's a bit of an unfairness in who, like who's depicted how frequently in the flashbacks and what we get to what we get to see, which, you know, I suppose is part of the reason why so many people want more Marauders stuff. Mm-hmm. I have to say it's, it's probably one of my favorite points of all of these books that this exists, that like, it's, it's one-sided against James, basically, mm-hmm. that it's never quite resolved i like that that exists because that's something that if i were like writing i would want to please everybody and i would never have something like this but this is like really controversial i think and i know we talked about it at length on a previous episode but i like that we're able to question harry's dad like this and the ambiguity makes him more realistic as well Mm -hmm. i think he's not just the hero or the bad guy there is shades of gray in there well from those lovely shades of gray we have a very um, valid point here, uh, <laughs> pointed out by Elvis Gaunt on the main site. Uh, it says, Each time I read this chapter, there's one point that kills me. Why didn't Sirius remind Harry of the mirror and ask its godson to use it the next time the latter had the urge to speak to him? <laughs> oh, my gosh. <laughs> this is a totally valid point. You know, I... I, I thought of that last week when I was reading the chapter and I didn't think to bring it up but yeah I saw quite a few people bring this up in the conversation both on the forums and the main site and it would have been it would have it was the perfect opportunity quite honestly yeah well you would yeah. think the first thing he would say is why aren't you using the mirror to talk to me right. so but how long ago was it given to him it was a few months now wasn't it Christmas, right? Mm-hmm. So where are we I, now? Where are I? I think Sirius. If you want to like a character reason, although I think it's just for like a literary reason for like super drama and mm-hmm. crap. Um, I think <laughs> that Sirius was just as always. He's too excited to see Harry and actually yeah. communicate with him. Mm. That he's he's like he and he never thinks of the consequences, right? It's never about. Oh my gosh, you're going to get in so much trouble for doing this. No, that's the thrill. That's what makes it fun. Um, though I, I, there is that, but I think it's a major um, plot issue. If because that is oh, Sirius just forgot. Harry forgot. Sirius could too. <laughs> yeah, well, that's but like true. the thing is too. Like the thing is that that is something that Sirius presumably knowingly gave to Harry so that it would be safe to contact yeah. him. Mm-hmm. Yeah, the difference, of course, being that Harry doesn't even know what it is and threw it at the bottom of his trunk. Right. So, of course, it's a little broken now, Oops. but it should still work. Um, yeah, no, I think it is mostly for the for the horrible twist at the end. Pretty much. Um, one, the, I guess you could reason to, because, you know, the, the conversation is very much under pressure since Harry is borrowing Umbridge's office and... Um, he almost gets caught when Felt shows up to get the approval for whipping. <laughs> so, so the conversation does get cut short. I mean, Harry doesn't even feel satisfied with the conversation as a whole. 
um, by the end of it. He's planned to ask more things. So who knows? Maybe Sirius was planning to bring it up. Um, Perhaps. But he just didn't have the time. All right. Well, we're going to close out with one more comment. Um, a good, nice and funny one, a nice light one here from Puff and Proud on the main site. The comment says, just a thought, Ginny feeding Harry chocolate. Since chocolate releases endorphins and make you feel good, could Ginny be trying to get Harry to associate feeling good with being around her? Kind of like love potion light. Is this one small step in the series that Ginny uses to get her man? <laughs> <laughs> No. <laughs> yeah, I just thought it was a really funny comment. It's cute. It's funny. That's all. Subconsciously, maybe she is. Who knows? She's no. definitely more active in this book, and yes, she more is around and more present. And you know, mm-hmm. she's she's working her way into the group. Yes, she is. That's true. But she does also have other boyfriends to worry about in this book. Mm-hmm. Besides, <laughs> chocolate isn't hers. Her mom sent it. So that's true. Oh, <laughs> there's the caveat, right? <laughs> Here, I have this chocolate that my mom sent. <laughs> Super sexy. <laughs> Molly Weasley matchmaker. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, right. So there we Just go. That's not where it comes to Hermione. Tiny little oh. Yeah. That's last book. Never mind. <laughs> yeah, I, that's funny because I thought the same thing when the Easter eggs. So I was like, where's the little. Oh, right. That's Goblet. <laughs> Never mind. Never mind. So there we go. That's our recap comments for this week. But of course, we have our question of the week from last week to go over as well. And the question was, in this chapter, Harry considers whether James forced Lily to marry him. While he is assured by Remus and Sirius that this is not the case, Harry leaves the conversation notably unconvinced. What about James causes Lily to change her views on and eventually marry him? uh, Views on and eventually marry him, even. Um, Was it simply his loss of arrogance or something more? There is quite a lot of discussion on the word forced, and I think I'm right in saying that that came out of the book itself and not just our question. Correct. Um, So thank you all so much for your discussion of it, but, you know, don't blame us. We were just (laughs) copying what they were saying. Um, The first comment here comes from Chocolate Frog Ravenclaw, and it does follow quite a lot of other people's views. Um, And it says, I don't think James forced Lily to marry him, but we do see him try incredibly hard to get Lily to go out with him. I don't think James would ever force Lily to do anything. I also think that they both really loved each other. But James always struck me as a flirt who was trying to go get the girl. In the beginning, at least. Once James actually got to know Lily, and once she got to know him, I don't think either of them forced the other into marriage. What caused Lily to change her mind and go out with James? We will never know, and we can only guess. Whatever it was, it, I think it was real and not something James forced her into. Yay! No, <laughs> I'm just, I'm happy that somebody said that so concisely that, yes, there was like, there was a legit thing, something legitimate happened from James's end that changed Lily's perspective. Right. Um, cause, you know, the Did funny it even thing, need changing, though? Like no. you can you can say something and think something else. Like she might have liked him in the first place and just not outwardly shown it while he was being a prat. Mm. That's Gee, true. Rosie, it's like you and I work for MuggleNet fan fiction or something I know, with views like it's that. It's amazing. Isn't it? All these other stories. <laughs> he can secretly have three illegitimate children too. <laughs> And be in love with Sirius. Yeah. <laughs> well, and the, just the funny no, thing. No, that's Remus. Uh, the, oh, that's right. Sorry. The they are married after all. Wolfstar. On the um, other side. 
But the, the, the funny thing about all of these responses was that I saw a lot of people saying, like, we can't possibly answer this because there's not enough evidence. But we got 41 comments. Like, <laughs> <laughs> like you, this is obviously something people feel very passionately about, about filling the gap in. Mm-hmm. Um, and I definitely think, like, I think this this response is probably the best definitive, like, with all the evidence we have from the text that we don't get to quite see that one that one particular moment. I feel like I feel like though. I feel like we should ask Joe for it because she's given us pretty much everything else we've asked for. I know. It's been amazing. So, um, so Joe, we we want the story. So give us the story of Lily and James. We know you're busy for Halloween. We've got Umbridge coming our way. Thank you very much for that. But, you know, we've got a thing called Christmas coming up. That would be perfect for a little, you know, holiday scene of, like, the first Christmas with Harry with the flying green. That was his birthday. Lily coming around. Lily coming around to James. Yes, please. And thank you very much. We appreciate it. Yes. Um, Moving on to the next question. uh, Next point, even. We've got Casey L again. I think we had her earlier. Um... The problem with this question, besides not knowing nearly enough about James at this point in the story, is that it assumes Lily's views are what changed. It seems the little evidence we have from Sirius and Remus suggests it was James who changed in order to accept, uh, in order for her to accept him. From what we know of her, Lily is a strong, intelligent young woman who has very clearly defined views of what she will and won't put up with in her friends and later her significant other. The James we see in Snape's worst memory is not good enough for her. But it seems to me he had a moment somewhere along the line when he realised, I care about this girl, and if I don't shape up, I will never have a chance with her. Um, he eventually settled down enough to get that first date, and from there, the rest is history. Hmm. It seems very realistic to me. That's probably what happened. I feel like that's what we were saying, but maybe we weren't saying it clearly enough. as nice as <laughs> well, she we was. Still, as we still yeah. asked, yeah, we still asked in the end if he <clears throat> forced Lily, so. Um, that's true. That's true, we did. I think it helps to to reiterate uh, that it could have been James who changed. Yeah, I think it's plausible. I agree. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. There was plenty of discussion on what might have caused James to change other than just kind of realising that he used to shape up in a very Grease style Um, (laughs) Minerva Lupin said, I always assumed that James changed his ways after the incident that nearly killed Snape via via the Lupin werewolf incident. Um... As we are told, Sirius explained to Snape how to get past the Whomping Willow in order to see the reason why Lupin would leave the castle at night. It was just in the nick of time that James stopped Snape from entering the passageway before Snape had come face to face with a Lupin werewolf. Sirius wrote it off as a prank, but this is my assumption here. James saw it as the Marauders having gone too far in their torment torment of Snape and thus deciding to end his bullying ways. This was a real eye-opener for James, since it was one thing making fun of Snape, but a whole different thing in nearly having him seriously injured, cursed, or killed. An incident like this would make anyone feel remorseful enough to change their ways. Isn't it stated what year that occurs? Um, I'm not sure. I was wondering if it's in their fifth year, because I'm wondering if this, if, if that would have happened before we saw this. Uh, when oh, they're that's taking a good point. OWLs and... Yeah, I was going to say part of me thought it was when James was head boy, but... Mm. Yeah, I feel like it's after this. Yeah, like enough enough sympathy from Lily if James was hanging around her would definitely help him to like humanize Snape and start feeling bad for him, especially if they almost killed him. Mm-hmm. Um, but like if he were third grade, because I thought I guess no, because it was Harry's third year. I don't think it was. 
James's third year as well. Because it was like at, at an earlier age, he would have not been so self-reflecting, mm-hmm. I guess, um, mm-hmm. based on the text from the book. Well, but, and if uh, if it is if it is that it's in the year that James's had boy, that would definitely speak to what we were talking about last week. That James has had this notable change in maturity where Sirius has not. Um, because we talked about that a lot about Sirius. We know that they only become Animagus in their fifth year, Uh, so it had to be after fifth year. So it had to be after that. Okay, that's a good point. But they are already nicknaming each other with their animal forms by this point. Uh, So in that case, yeah, I see that event as a perfect catalyst for James kind of, at least Mm -hmm. the beginning of the end of James's bullying side, Um, for him to be able to, uh, well, basically split opinions with Sirius. That can't happen often. Um, And that that would probably be the number one thing that leads to his, um, you know, reform. And I, I, gosh, we have such good listeners for pointing that out. I had forgotten about that event at all, completely. Isn't it interesting, though, that that's not Snape's worst memory, coming face-to-face with a werewolf? He didn't, though, did he? He didn't, though, yeah. Did he not at all? Like, he never really no. got that close? He got, okay. I've, as far as we know, he got, like, far down the passage. Maybe that right. would be James's worst memory instead. Maybe. <laughs> um. Oh, yeah, you know what? That, that totally reeks of almost getting what you wish for. You know, like your worst enemy, your arch nemesis in school, uh, just nearly comes face to face with with death. Um, but it's your friend, and everybody would be in trouble if he died. So it's like, not, like not wanting it as much as you want it for mm-hmm. for James. I'm sure that would have been a now that now that this was brought up by Minerva Lupin, um, I now see it as like the defining canon character moment for James to change his ways. I would say so. And according to the wiki, it just says at some point in their school years. So we don't know if it was before or after, but <laughs> I think it's safe to assume that it was after this moment. Mm-hmm. Right, because they're animages. Or they're all animages. Right. Except, you know what? They did a lot in their last few years because they can't have been Mooney, Wormtail, Padfoot, and Prongs without knowing what their animages states were. And we see in Snape's worst memory that they, uh, you know, call themselves that. So they also couldn't have made the map until right about but that time. Well, they be- pick your animal. I think you pick your own animal when you become an animagus. You do, no. but did, yeah, you do. You pick your animal. No, you don't. No, you don't. No, you just get don't. you just get an animal. No, okay. Yeah, but mm. but I mean, if they were referencing that that early, that could at least indicate that they were maybe working because they would have had to work. I think well, it says it, that they worked on it for a year before they managed it. So, yeah, it happened in their third year. Yeah, they've been working on it for a while. So by this point, they've probably refined it enough that they've figured they've out what down. their what their animal is. Like if they're not, if they have, maybe they've done a few like test runs on the grounds. But no, 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 because they say like Wormtail, you run with a werewolf once a month. Like they've got it down at this point. So they do have it down. Yeah, that's right. Oh so yeah, it, because they they perfect it in their third year, and this is two years after. If they oh, perfect, perfect it in their, in their fifth. No, third. Because <laughs> it depends. Because so. if it's if it's their third, then this event was the event with Snape and the werewolf could have already happened. It could have, but I doubt it. <clears throat> As second years, they discover that Remus is a werewolf. It then takes them three years to learn how to be an animagus. So that makes it fifth year that they perfect it. Uh, okay. 
Mm. Well, that's lucky. I yeah, I would choose to believe that the event or the incident with Snape and the werewolf takes place after Snape's first memory, just because that wraps it up in a little bow for me. I think. Yeah. <laughs> um, and and why we haven't been reminded of that event, you know, like in in the after book kind of discussion, um, is is kind of shocking to me because that to me like again answers all the questions. So there's a lot that Pottermore could give us. <laughs> um, yes, please. <laughs> <laughs> Hufflepuff Skeen has sent us a audio boom, um, so we are going to play that now. Have a listen. Hey there, this is Leah, our Hufflepuff Skeen. I wanted to give a comment on the podcast question of the week and the general idea of James is controversial. One, just to start off, I never really found it controversial. I never really needed him to be redeemed. It, it just wasn't something that came up in my reading of the story, and it's actually been eye-opening to hear all this sort of thing um, from listeners in, in the podcast. Um, I, I always just assumed that, you know, kids that age are going to be jerks and sometimes, or maybe a lot of the time, and they're going to grow out of it, or at least most of them are going to grow out of it. And, um, so it wasn't ever really something that I felt like some event needed to redeem him for being a jerk. I just assumed it was going to be a maturation process. The other thought that I have on this is that maybe the premise is a bit um, problematic because why does James have to have this big old transformation to be perfection? It's almost as if we see Lily as perfect and so she has to have a perfect companion, but I don't think that James has to be perfect to be compatible with Lily. In real life, we have, we love people that are flawed. We can recognize their flaws and still love them. You know, James could still be a little bit of a jerk in some situations or he he could still harbor a bit of prejudice sometimes, um, and Lily could still love him. So I feel a bit like the premise of the question about just seeing James as needing to become a really awesome individual is a little problematic, and maybe it's a change in Lily. Maybe she um, became a little less perfect. I mean, that's an option, right? So um, I, I just wanted to give that sort of flip side of um of the coin to to think about it in a little bit different way perhaps wow it's a uh, it's brilliant listener day on a little more it really is. <laughs> um, i think it goes back to what we were saying earlier that um the flaws make people human and if we see them as perfect people or needing to be perfect people then they become just rubbish characters and not worth mm-hmm. reading I'm totally guilty of uh, idealizing Lily because everybody else does. But well, yeah, everybody yeah, does, yeah. The, I think the book doesn't give us the, the book doesn't give us cause not to because we, you know, even up till the pretty much up to the end, Lily is kind of portrayed like this kind of perfect, just angel of a character. Well, she's, she's defined by her final act, which is mm-hmm. to die for mm-hmm. Harry. Like mm-hmm. that is that is something that. I guess James does too, but it's like less like known, right? It's like James, he died first, but it wasn't his death that provided the protection. Um, mm-hmm. so yeah, which is just kind of think... sucky. Like he died to protect the other two. Why doesn't he get to save them? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Never mind. <laughs> I like, I, I like that she points out um, that maybe it's Lily that changed a little bit too. I don't know. Mm-hmm. It's entirely possible, right? Yeah. Uh, this user, um, Leah's, that was, I really like that point as well. Mm-hmm. But with the whole kids are just kids and they grow out of it thing, there is still no excuse for bullying. Mm-hmm. So, I wouldn't say it's not, I wouldn't say bullying is not natural though. I would say that it is our duty as 
adults to try and stop people bullying wherever possible. <laughs> yeah, oh, I completely. In my teacher mode. <laughs> look, as a victim of group F bullying myself, I would completely yeah. agree. But I, I wouldn't go so far as to say that it's not um, common or naturally occurring. Yeah, um, we just have to try. It and needs to be. It needs to be better understood, people. I think, and better um, reformed. Mm-hmm. Prevented that sort of thing. Yeah. Here, here. Just to close up this discussion, I've got a really interesting point from Arabella M, and it says, "Would it be fair to judge Ro- uh, judge Ron with only one unfavorable memory? What if we only saw the moment when Ron was jealous of Harry in Goblet of Fire, or when he gave up searching for the Horcruxes in Deathly Hallows? How would we make sense of Hermione marrying him later? Of course, we see much more of Ron than we do of James." Yes, Ron is an idiot at times, however, <laughs> mostly he's a wonderfully loyal friend. And we all know that Hermione loves him because of his good qualities overlooking or tolerating his not-so-desirable moments. I don't think James and Lily were any different. Wow. Slow clap. <laughs> Slow clap. Absolutely. Arabella M has totally turned this on its head. Now I'm tired of discussing James and Lily because I want to discuss Ron and Hermione and have come back with him after the, how horrible he was to Harry all those times. That's true. You know what? This point is spot on. Definitely. Well, uh, yep. Well argued. Good job. Enough said. And that's the end of our discussion. <laughs> <laughs> Which, of course, brings us to this week's chapter, chapter 30. Chapter 30. Grop. Honey. Oh. Well, here is our chapter summary for this week. Fred and George's departure has left a lasting impact on the students, staff, and other worldly denizens of Hogwarts, causing a full-scale rebellion against Umbridge and her lackeys. But in the trio's immediate world, Harry reveals that he funded Fred and George's business and that he has yet to return to his occlumency lessons. But before Hermione can chew Harry out, the focus shifts to Ron's Quidditch woes as the Gryffindor versus Ravenclaw match fast approaches. Unfortunately, Hermione and Harry don't get a chance to watch Ron's luck turn around as Hagrid beckons them to the Forbidden Forest where the centaurs have turned territorial and where Hagrid's giant half-brother Grop awaits lessons in civility. Much to Harry and Hermione's dismay, Hagrid asks for a promise that Grop will be cared for if Umbridge sacks him. But on the upside, Ron helped win the Quidditch Cup. So there's that, kind of, but not really. Only you, Michael, could include a chapter summary which uses both words denizens and lackeys in one sentence yeah i had i had to look up denizens i feel embarrassed but i also feel impressed and the sheer impressment it is a very good word which by the way for our listeners if you're confused just like i was uh and denizen is an an inhabitant of or occupant of a particular place and speaking of denizens fred and george (laughs) have most certainly left their mark on the denizens of Hogwarts. Oh, it's overused now. No, no, there you go. <laughs> oh, no. Um, but yes, Fred and George have, have left and have qua- caused quite a stir in their absence. And I wanted to point out a few things about kind of the the follow-up from once they've gone. And one of them is that really just how... I've never really kind of realized it before because the chapters with with Fred and George's jokes and with the aftermath of their jokes are so, you know, are they're, they're so fun and lighthearted. They're some of the big 
major pick-me-ups of this book. Um, but what's what Hermione keeps stressing about them is that there is a really sophisticated level to what they're doing. And what's so neat to me about it is that this this is really kind of an early sign of just how Fred and George use will use um, their talent and their knowledge because, of course, we're going to find out in the next book that they are creating products to aid in the war mm. um, and that they're very socially conscious. What I like about uh, this part of the chapter is that I had kind of forgotten, too, how nuanced it is that they actually, um, Hermione and Ron are worried that Fred and George came by their money for this in an untoward way. Uh, that they could because they know that there's ex- exceptionally talented wizards, you know, doing this. Um, the swamp is still not cleared up. All this beautiful stuff, um, but they worry that Fred and George did something illegal to get the kind of money to give themselves the financial footing um, to do this. And and when Harry dispels that, when he he actually tells them the truth, it, it, there's just this sense of relief because they could have possibly um, been. I guess more harmful, or I wouldn't say like, well, unlawful. Let's just say there. They could have crossed the line, I think. Mm-hmm. Um, well, and it kind of, that, I was thinking about that with that portion, and that's kind of, that speaks shades of coming off of the previous year where they thought that Fred and George were blackmailing Ludo Bagman. Right. Yeah. Mm. Um, which, of course, they, 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 they weren't. They were actually trying to make an honest man out of him. Um, so that. Well. Tomato, tomato. <laughs> right, that's true. <laughs> so, but but it is it is definitely like I I think since they didn't have the the evidence, the fact that they did go to that place because we had talked last week about how Fred and George are they any different from James and Sirius? Um, oh, how right. far would how far are they willing to go to get what they need? Well, um, James doesn't need to look past his own Gringotts vault. Yes. <laughs> As he has passed down to his son. Um, but uh, the other thing that's that I think, again, with the with the idea of Fred and George being just so on the up and up about what's going on around them and really being very thoughtful about what they do, these two individuals end up causing pretty much a school-wide, like, they they managed to unite the school in a way that I don't think we've seen in a while. Definitely not in this book. Um, This has gone beyond Dumbledore's army, and now pretty much every house has united to take Umbridge down, notably except Slytherin. (laughs) (laughs) Who are still... Precursor. Yeah. (laughs) Listeners listeners at home, readers at home, this is your clue for... Right. (laughs) What's going to come in... Book seven. Yeah. I mean, they've definitely given them the excuse and the means to just let her have it, right? I mean, yeah. it's great. I love it. And it's the just, tools. I mean, there's Peeves who's taken their words to heart, but then there's every single student who also has done the same thing. And all the skiving snack boxes. I love it. Can you imagine just like being umbridge, walking into a room and people like start bleeding and vomiting and having boils and fevers? Like, I don't know. Well, it's just funny. And that's, yeah, it's just, that's just it. It's like she, what the, the chapter points out is that she can't send them all to detention. Um, mm-hmm. And she can't not send them out of her class because they're causing, they're all causing the disruption together. It's a very, I, I, I've, I do like the statement of, of kind of what, what a group can do, can mm-hmm. manage to do, what the power of a group is. 
Um, but regardless of that, everybody still takes kind of an eye for an eye approach with the Slytherins. Um, and the Slytherins attempt to lay down the law via the Inquisitorial Squad and the school, just like with Umbridge, fights back on them as well. And we find out about Slytherins like Pansy Parkinson, who who suddenly sprout antlers for some reason. <laughs> <laughs> and I want to know more about that charm. I wanna... <laughs> right, that sounds like a handy little charm, and and it looks like it's and it's been mentioned here. Um, I'm Cat. Was that you who inserted that? That was me. I I, I figured as much. Um, but it's worth mentioning, definitely that that because uh, it is it the conversation that comes out of it is interesting that Montague has still not recovered from being thrown in the vanishing cabinet and then showing up and stuck in the toilet. Um, <laughs> and it's kind of laughed off by Ron and Harry, like, well, that's what he deserves. And Hermione's like, but he yeah. could be permanently damaged. Yeah. <laughs> so, um, and the question of whether they should actually tell Madame Pomfrey what happened because she doesn't know so that they can't even help Montague. I, I mean, ostensibly does he, he does get better. How does she not know? Like, I'm wondering, what's the circle <laughs> of knowledge around who threw him in a van? Like, she doesn't know where he's been. Like, clearly he can't say where he's been, but I feel like more than one person would know that Fred and George threw him there. Or is it just the Gryffindors that know and nobody's doing the right thing? Because that wouldn't no. be surprising. I mean, maybe it's only Friend George and the trio. Maybe they didn't, or the, and Lee Jordan, probably. I'm sure they didn't tell anybody else. Well, he's but been even found. they don't really know what happened to Montague. He went into a vanishing cabinet and vanished. That's all that they know. <laughs> they don't know what happened then. So, yeah. but it like won't it help with the dying with like the treatment if somebody just walks up to Madame Pomfrey and says that's where he's what been. He saw, man. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So you think? Wait, Rosie. So you think he saw something that got him this way? Well, no, I don't know because this is obviously the vanishing cabinet that we later find out is broken. So yeah. anything could have happened. Well, they they um, did. It is later revealed that he's he flits back and forth between there and Borgen and Burks. Yeah. So he that could have boring. heard. He like could have heard, no, he could have heard some nasty things at Borgen and Burks, for all we know. Well, and he's, I think he's uh, Slytherin. He's prepared for dark stuff. Right? Well, the <laughs> implication is that because the magic is broken, that that yeah. kind of breaks him <laughs> because yeah. he's just kind of tossed around in the in the nether in the nothingness. So he is yeah. the equivalent of the exploding bird in the movie. Yes. Uh huh. Yes. So. Maybe he goes. Maybe he visits Chuck World. That other world. Remember the world we talked about? The ghost world? The portrait world? Oh. Weird. <laughs> Never mind. He's, no, but like he's like peeked into the void. Yes. You know? yeah. As he's Rosie like, said, he's seen things. He's um, seen other dimensions. But, but yes, you it is. No, man, you went there. <laughs> <laughs> but is, is the vanishing cabinet bigger on the inside? Just thinking out loud. Probably. Uh, oh. <laughs> so he's been I to the edge of the universe. In space. <laughs> mm-hmm. <laughs> he's seen everything. I was trying to make another anagram out of toilet, Rosie, because it's capitalized here in Cat's notes. <laughs> but uh, it's going to take me too long. But as, as as Eric said, it is worth noting that this is kind of the foreshadowing of what's going to happen at the Battle of Hogwarts. And mm-hmm. really, at this point, if the Slytherins aren't coming around now, like this is probably the most extreme division we've seen at Hogwarts between um the staff and the stu- well the one member of staff and the students and it is um, surprising that the slytherins are still sticking to it i just i i re- i just want one slytherin like joe just like one name just one. a random slytherin that is like decent like just make them up i don't care 
<laughs> just there are plenty of good fanfics where there is just that one Slytherin kid going, guys, what the hell are you doing? <laughs> <laughs> good, well, that would that's be a terrible Hogwarts existence to spend seven years going, guys, really? really? <laughs> what? <laughs> yeah. But meanwhile, in the trio's immediate world, they are taking another charms class. It's been a while since we've sat in on a charms class. Mm-hmm. And of all the things, they're making teacups... They're casting a charm to put legs on teacups. And <laughs> I have to ask, I have it here in italicized because it is ever so important to ask. <laughs> is it alive? Are the teacups <laughs> alive? Noah? Noah? <laughs> is that you? I feel like we, we just, that's just a question we ask and don't answer anymore. <laughs> if it is alive, okay, I'll, I'll answer this. You want, you ready for this? I'm, yes, my body is uh, ready. This is like a qualifier, like, if it is alive, it's suicidal. <laughs> yes, because the first thing that two teacups do is they run to the nearest edge of the table and jump off. <laughs> okay, we should not be laughing about that. The, I know. The, the, well, that that's how painful creating life is with magic, right? Something well, that's the thing. Is so. it like the fact that it's not done completely and so it doesn't want to live? Like, whatever. But, but, like, why legs on teacups? That, well, I exactly. think it's no, meant to be, like, why not? So that- if you're serving a big meal, like, it can go and serve itself. <laughs> now but, I'm just thinking of Beauty and the Beast. Exactly, well, uh, yeah. That, that kind they of don't have legs in Beauty and the Beast. They waddle. <laughs> they, they waddle or hop, yeah. Yeah, exactly. Well, and that's definitely... Oh. what your definition of legs is. <laughs> I think I that's definitely what we see a lot of in charms is kind of these... The, they're, they're much more... Charms are much more flashy spells that aren't necessarily practical, like they're more mm. for flamboyancy, which it would seem to be in this case. Because you certainly uh, there are probably plenty. Of, like you could levitate the cups if you so desired. The cups don't have to walk themselves to be. <laughs> that's, yeah, that's true. That's Both true. are charms. <laughs> um, that's true. Which is like I guess anything in the magical world. Right? Just because you can, should you? Doesn't you know? mean you should. <laughs> and and I feel like I feel like these teacups jumping off the tables is a sign that you should probably not. <laughs> I feel like you're channeling Molly Weasley right now. How's that? Because she tells Fred and George when they become of age, just because you can do magic doesn't mean you should. Says the woman who <laughs> often levitates cauldrons of soup and that's true. Gets and knives to chop themselves. And- <laughs> right. <laughs> well, but, and- um. Oh, go ahead, Eric. Oh, there. Is- I wanted to mention uh, there is another charm that comes in handy in this chapter. Speaking of charms, real quick, it's the bubblehead charm, right? Yes. Isn't it? Yes. Mm-hmm. Whenever I read that, I always think about the bubblehead charm in the book, in the movie, where it's like just over their mouth. I prefer this one where it says it's like an upside down fishbowl, like <laughs> yeah, stuck just a bunch on the of head. astronauts running around Hogwarts because <laughs> um, students won't stop dropping what sink pellets, right? Yeah, yep. That's that's so bad. So you got to wear your protective bubblehead charm through the hallways. And um, the supply of fresh so there, air. so there, yeah. There's a there's a charm that actually has some practical <laughs> applications. Um, but the interesting thing too about this lesson and uh, of lessons that we've seen, really not uh, this happens. This seems to happen especially in charms lessons, but um, and especially in this book, we've seen it before. But charms lessons especially seem to reflect the skill set, the current skill set of Harry, Ron, and Hermione. Um, every class where right. we see them practicing, Hermione's excelling, and Ron is failing miserably, and Harry's kind of somewhere in between the two of them. 
Mm-hmm. Um, interestingly, Ron actually manages to make his teacup walk, but its legs are too long, so it just topples down on itself. Harry can't even make his teacup grow legs that are long enough to go anywhere. <laughs> um, and Hermione is doing it perfectly. But interestingly, she let she does when she's so shocked at the news that Harry has funded Fred and George, she does let her teacup walk off the edge and smash. I'm telling you, the second she looks away, the teacup makes a run for it. <laughs> yeah, it says that it jogged. It does right not want to be transformed right now. <laughs> but it's an interesting thing to keep track of, especially in this book, since we are getting very close to exam time to just watch how because the 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 one the, probably the most interesting lesson kind of background lesson in charms that we see is the one where they're actually levitating a pillow and they're trying to move it nicely onto the pile that they're supposed to put it on and harry surprises himself by actually doing it correctly without really <laughs> focusing on it <laughs> um so it is it's it's just interesting to keep track of that and we'll see that in future books too yeah. um and then of course we get to the core of this chapter Oh, the core. Its name, it's, its name is Grop. What a name. And, okay, before we even get to Grop, because we're gonna, we're gonna talk a lot about Grop, but before we even get to him, the interesting thing about introducing Grop is that we end up getting a Hermione versus Hagrid situation, which doesn't happen very often. Really? It happens quite often. Oh, I kind of feel like Hermione even, like, she'll, she entertains Hagrid. Like, she's willing to at least let him get on with his insanity, but she it's doesn't... More, um, she generally tries to teach him. Mm. So, like, with Norbert, it was, you know, trying to get rid of the dragon, mm-hmm. and she pretty much sorted that out for them, didn't she? Or was that more Ron and Harry that did that? Oh, no, that was her and Harry. Yeah. yeah. Um. Then you've got her teaching Hagrid how to kind of stand up for himself um, and defend um, Buckbeak. Buckbeak, thank you. <laughs> um, and you've got her kind of doing lesson plans and things for him, for Umbridge. So she does do a lot. It, Hermione and Hagrid seem to pair up to do things fairly often, whereas Harry's just kind of like, what? Yep, Hagrid, he's my best friend. Yeah, of course. Yeah, so cool. like, yeah, <laughs> Harry doesn't often question Hagrid's actions. Yeah. Very random, ridiculous thing. I was just Googling the entomology of Grop. And the scary part is babynames.com was the first website to come up. No, no. no. <laughs> I'm just saying. <laughs> Name all. your child, Grop. I always assumed it was, uh, what is it? Not a portmanteau. I'm using, I'm forgetting the literary term, but it's it sounds like, it sounds like grow up. Mm-hmm. Mm. Mm-hmm. Which is which is a joke because he's sixteen feet tall, but he's also got kind of a mind of a child, and he's also small for a giant. So Grop is kind of like I don't know. Just I always thought of it as like grow up. I think that was one of the first things. Well, and as far as we know, that may not even be his name. That's just how Hagrid hears it. Right. So it's just a noise <laughs> that he makes occasionally. That's, that's a noise. Hagrid's got like pretty well trained ears, <laughs> but for for giant speak, I would think. The the interesting thing about because really this is the the funny th- what what's humorous in this in this portion but what is also interesting to see is that Hermione pretty much completely loses her head which is something we don't see very often um, and it gets to the point where she actually very briefly sides with Umbridge by 
saying that she she finds it somewhat reasonable or believable that Umbridge would try to kick Hagrid out after uh, what he's doing in the forest. After what he's do after they find out what he, what he's doing with Grop. Um, can I just say that I just completely take umbrage with everything that Hagrid <laughs> does in this chapter? He's using the kids are like codependent to him. He's using their um, good nature to really, 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 really get them to inappropriately enter the forest and care for his giant brother. Like his mistake is now their pain to deal with. It's now their problem, mm-hmm. and. I don't think it's cool at all that he's asking this of Hermione and Harry and, you know, Ron by extension. I don't think it's cool that he even asks. And, of course, once they see what's going on in the forest, they kind of want to help, but they're also kind of scared. And I don't know. It's If it weren't for the centaur's, like, one remark about not killing foals or, like, kids or whatever, mm-hmm. like, if it weren't for that one thing... That it's like the one saving grace where I'm like, okay, they probably will be okay if they come back into the forest. But if it weren't for that, Hagrid is really asking them to risk their lives for his vendetta or his well, own and, passing interest. Well, and Hermione even says that she's like a giant in the forest and we have to teach him English. Like, <laughs> I mean, I think Hermione is right there with you. I think most <laughs> of us are. I would agree. Yeah. Yeah. That. Well, and going along with that... As was mentioned, many people find this, and it wasn't just uh, just us. This is a pretty universal feeling on this chapter, that it is almost, in a way, kind of pointless. So Grop gets introduced here. He's a big, kind of silly giant, and he's he's kind of adorably aloof to everything around him. But his he he doesn't really go anywhere. In He's my opinion, well, yes, quite Ba-dum-bum. literally. But Grubs, unlike so many things that Rowling introduces, which end up having some really rich payoff, Grub pretty much just gets a cameo at the Battle of Hogwarts, and that's it. Is if you guys want to elaborate further, kind of on your feelings on Grub as a character and his and and the relevancy of this chapter, well. Ooh, ooh. Yeah, go on. <laughs> ooh, ooh, I have a, I have a theory. Um, I think that this was Joe's attempt at giving Hagrid a family, and I believe at this point she had still, um, she at one point considered offing Hagrid, mm-hmm. or was he the one that she said? Who, uh, I feel like my point is, <laughs> I feel like this was her attempt to give Hagrid a family, so that if she wanted to kill him, we would feel bad. Mm. That's all. I think also it could be possible that the Giants had a big role in the Battle of Hogwarts that never got written down on the page. Or That's maybe, true too. maybe Grop had a bigger role. Like I always felt it was leading towards the final battle. And he does participate, Like, you, although Michael called it a cameo. Um, Which it is. You really only – he pops in like – you. He, he pops in once. He's there for the whole thing ostensibly, but you only get really one big moment from him. And he's also at Dumbledore's funeral at the end of book six. Um but that's really all we see of him. And kind of what you guys were saying, that perhaps he was a remnant of a lost plot line. But what's interesting to me about that is we've seen from Rowling, thanks to her old website and Pottermore, that there were a lot of remnants that got cut. Mm-hmm. Um, I feel like he's definitely one of them. That it should've... bugs me that he wasn't cut from the movie. <laughs> yeah, me too. Like, uh, all yeah. of the things that they cut... And they don't cut Grop. 
Yeah, I was mm-hmm. actually thinking about that in this book because I, I remember the scene, and it's this important scene. Um, and there are so many continuity errors that it blows my mind. Yeah. It blows my mind. That stupid set of handlebars goes back and forth between <laughs> Hermione and Grob four times. Oh, <laughs> I'm sorry. We'll get there. We'll get there. Well, and and the thing about what the movie almost could have done and was bordering on doing seamlessly, which in a way I feel the book should have done, is focus more on the centaurs um, and take yeah. Grop out completely. Um, yep. Because the centaurs seem to fill that role just fine, especially because I mm-hmm. think the anticipation from a lot of readers when Hermione at the end of the book leads Umbridge and Harry into the forest is that she's actually going to Grop. To the centaur. Yeah. yeah. But then she goes to the centaurs and they take care of it and Grop's really not even necessary to the scene. You know mm-hmm. what? Like, I was just thinking about this too. Like, um, book seven came out the same summer as movie five. In fact, like two weeks apart, I think I remember. It was the summer of Potter. Mm-hmm. And um, so, but like, clearly J.K. Rowling said that Grop was a big enough guy, big enough character that he should be in the movie, right? Because they were like consulting. And I'm sure she consulted on the script a little bit. So he was important enough to keep in the movie for everybody involved, but she kind of would have a really great idea of his role, how big it was going to be, how important it was because she was finishing writing or editing book seven. True, true. Hmm. And yet he still made the cut. He still made the cut over other things. Well, and I don't know if that's definitive proof because she didn't have say over everything in the script. And actually I feel, and we'll get to this more, of course, with the movie viewing, but order is a, in my opinion, a, a shoddy script. It has problems. It has a lot of problems. Um, with things that just get introduced and don't go anywhere. And Grop is one of those to a to a fault, one of the most major ones. Um, hey, look, they took something perfectly from the book and put it in the movie. And put it in the movie. <laughs> a plot that goes nowhere. <laughs> <laughs> See, that's what happens when you adapt everything. Yeah, good job. Um, but yeah, it's, just I think... One other thing, though. Oh, with, go ahead. With Hagrid asking Harry and Hermione to look after him. Hagrid goes to a cave on the other side of Hogsmeade. <laughs> That's as far breath. as he goes. <laughs> he could easily have come back and or just even just stayed in the forest. Yeah. Umbridge certainly is not going to go looking for him there. <laughs> well, it's and I, just I suppose true. he doesn't stay in the forest because of the centaurs. Um mm. but I mean considering how much protection Grop probably would have been yeah, <laughs> he probably could have taken him with him or stayed in the forest. Either one would have worked. Yeah. You know what? I Going do like with the spiders. I guess I do like in the movie that the shot of the centaurs trying to get Grop, trying to attack him, and how the arrows just kind of don't even phase him. I do like that scene. Mm-hmm. It's the worst CGI. Just, uh, <laughs> none of it is believable. If we talk about it all now, we're not going to have anything to match. This is true. We'll it comes to movie them. time. <laughs> <laughs> but yes, the the grop that that's grop. Um, there's... Can we find any redeeming features of grop before we go? <laughs> like, this well, whole okay, we just hate, I think it's easy to hate him because he's simple, right? I mean, it's not. That's, that's not. That shouldn't be. Mm. I don't hate Grop. I just think he's useless. <laughs> ah, okay. Well, I think I think what makes it kind of doubly offensive to the fandom is that Order of the Phoenix is already really long and very depressing 
as a book, comparatively <gasps> no. speaking. Like, it's a heavy book, you have to admit. Whether you like, even if you love it, it's heavy. It's heavy material. And at this point, this is where we're really laying it on. Um, but then grew up his slightly light relief in the whole Hermie thing. That's kind of funny. <laughs> stretch, <laughs> stretch that plot. <laughs> <laughs> well, and and like Kat said too, Grup does also fill the role of kind of f- filling out Hagrid's character and his past and his family, um, which is something that Hagrid's kind of always. You know, we we've gotten hints from Goblet that he's that a family unit is something he would like to have, um, and this is definitely it's not fan service; it's it's Hagrid service that Rowling is doing here. Um, <laughs> well, and it explains. You could I mean, easily have got that by marrying rather oh, than by having a brother, Madame Maxine. Yeah. Who, by the way, it is worth noting, couldn't even put up with Grop. And that is yeah. why they separated on the yeah, way like back. She, bless she her. never turns up again. She, yeah, she agreed to not mention it to the Ministry of Magic and the other governing bodies that would be offended by Grop's presence. Mm-hmm. Um, which is nice. I mean, that she did a nice thing for Hagrid there. But he took two extra months to get down off the side of the mountain. Mm-hmm. Just to, yeah, just it's to It's kind of like she turned around and said, we were going on this nice walking holiday and now you're only interested in your brother. Fine, I'm leaving. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. <laughs> but, uh, listeners, if you can come up with some kind of connections or saving graces for Grop, we'd really appreciate it. Um, he's nice to have around, but he just doesn't quite... I think for I think because we've been so conditioned, especially by Rowling's writing, to see something come out of everything, mm-hmm. This this is the first big instance where literally big where nothing big comes out of it (laughs) um but moving forward uh there is the matter of the centaurs and the one thing i did want to discuss about the centaurs is that they talked to haggard about getting extremely offended that he intervened and saved forenz's life and for me this brought up issues that are similar in a way to trelawney's method of fortune telling which is if the if the if the centaurs can see everything that's going to happen in the grand scheme of things wouldn't they have seen that coming anyway oh, <laughs> like they, they don't see <laughs> particular things they see shifts in power and that kind of thing mars is bright tonight therefore something bad will happen they war don't is know coming yeah they, they see what's they actually see what's t- twitter trending right now <laughs> well and they, wouldn't they it, see trends but wouldn't it be because this is such for them this is such a dramatic shift with their relationship with the rest of Hogwarts as well yeah. as even the rest of the forest like is and even if that even if Hagrid intervening wasn't the perhaps like the event that was specifically written in the stars wouldn't this be something that they would have like this general change of attitude wouldn't this be something that they would have already foreseen uh i mean not unless i mean what if it was just i mean a split decision, something that wasn't predestined or determined. Um, you know, I, I think that that, you know, maybe um, Trelawney being sacked and there being a new teacher was something that's always been destined, but maybe they threw them for a huge loop. Dumbledore did when they asked Ferenz or Ferenzi, however you say it, to uh, be the new teacher. I maybe think, that was just completely out of left field. Um, 
Yeah, I mean, I think what they might have seen in the stars is something like their gradual displacement from the forest, maybe? like this, Yeah, this something un- more broad. Something more broad, and then that mm. surprises them mm-hmm. um, in in the intricacies. I mean, I think it's... I think it's really awesome that obviously what Hagrid did, and and I know we give shade to Grop, but Hagrid I think did the right thing here. Um, unless you go by like Star Trek's Prime Directive, in which case they probably should have killed friends because that was their practice. Like mm-hmm. I don't know, we see it as overreacting, and we're allowed that luxury. But for the centaurs, it's like giving away their secrets that they hold culturally dear. Like friends, you can't help but kind of see it from the centaur's perspective in the way that he's like broken the holy, like sacred, um, secrets to a bunch of uncaring, unsuspecting 15 year olds. I think it definitely matters that friends is so different from the rest of the centaurs. Like him and Bane are extremely different people. Mm-hmm. Um, if you can call centaurs people. Yeah. They wouldn't be happy with that. No, they wouldn't. Um, <laughs> oh. <laughs> um but their attitudes towards wizards are very different. And I think the general attitude of the centaurs is that they know that the the next war is coming and that they are distancing themselves from the wizarding world. Mm. And Ferenz does the opposite. He wants to help. He helps um, Harry and he sees kind of a hero figure that might actually win the war. Mm-hmm. Um, and in, in that sense, he does what he can to influence things, which is not the centaurs' way. Mm. Um, so I think it's more differing attitudes within the centaurs than the centaurs in general. Yeah, making yeah, yeah. Well, and I like I like the idea too that there's that element that they've also perhaps foreseen the evolving, changing place of their position in the forest, which is yeah. a direct consequence of this upcoming war. Um, and since centaurs, we know are so kind of involved with their with their own culture and their own lives and don't really much care for humans although that is something i'm still questioning especially because they do seem the uh, i go back to sorcerer's stone when they kept dropping the fact that mars is bright tonight in front of harry ron and hermione and hagrid they um, kind of want to be overheard <laughs> yeah exactly um but uh luckily they we 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 get out of range of the centaurs who as eric previously pointed out, say that they will not harm children, but we'll see that that's not true. (laughs) Right. Uh, That's a parallel between uh, book one and book five, or a parallel or not. There's something in the forest that they don't want in the forest. Um, Mm -hmm. In book one, Mm -hmm. it's Voldemort, and they need Hagrid's help removing it, right? Or they need Hogwarts's help removing it. Mm -hmm. And in book five, Hagrid put it there. So they, they don't like it. Well, and I, I, that's interesting you brought that up because I, I think of the parallels. I, I immediately thought of the parallels between this and and book two where uh, we see that Hagrid's relationship with things in the forest is actually perhaps not as definite and assured as we think Where because, once again, we have a rather large group of creatures that are willing to kill mm. Harry and his friends, even though and they don't want to Hagrid kill Hagrid. Stress. I mean, that's in the text. Yeah, yeah they, that the kids would kill Hagrid. Yeah. So. Who would win, centaur or giant spider? Ooh. Uh, Ooh. Cent- oh, actually, yeah, that's centaur because they can use weapons, like yep. ranged ranged weapons. Right. That's yeah. true. Now I'm mm-hmm. Centaur. My D and D. Right in one of your <laughs> nice. eight eyes, spiders. 
But the last point uh, is, of course, about Quidditch. There's a lot of kind of background Quidditch going on in this chapter, which, as I've mentioned before in discussion, it is becoming very clear that uh, Rowling is becoming frustrated and bored with Quidditch because, once again, there's an important match here, but we don't get to see it. Um, I think a lot of people would... place off screen. Yes, and I think a lot of people would actually happily trade Grup out for this match. <laughs> oh, yeah, yeah, I think we would, Now you've actually. just sold it. Now you've, now you've said it. <laughs> there must be a fan fiction about this match. If there, there must be. It, well, there Thank is now. Is. Well, Ron talks about it, so we get it through his reporting. That's true. Yeah, but. we'll eventually get a kind of quick version of this match yeah but it's interesting to note that harry and cho's relationship is actually kind of reflected in this match (laughs) um we see kind of the 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 closure on that which is that harry sees cho um going out to to play quidditch and that she's chatting with roger davies very animatedly and harry feels nothing except a slight (laughs) twinge of oh god there she is and that's kind of the end of it um but more importantly Ron finds his bearings, and there is a transformation of the Weasley is Our King song, which humorously Hermione doesn't even notice when they hear it (laughs) starting up. Um, But the Gryffindors have taken the song and made it their own. Um, And Ron is just like, yep, I won. And we find out (laughs) later that he's like, yeah, I just finally figured it out. (laughs) (laughs) i think i think it is perfectly done that it's off screen because like at this point in the book i my eyes were skipping past the weasley song like i was just oh there it is okay it's indented i can easily skip it like so i didn't realize (laughs) at first that the words were different like Mm. did not let the quaffle in hmm you know there's so it it shocked me i think i had the same reaction Mm -hmm. shocked you were shocked yeah i was yeah i was shocked well i guess like it's just kind of, I mean, Ron's character arc in, in my head canon or, like, because it happened off screen, I like that she makes you think about it. Because, like, for me, I just think, okay, so he made one good save that he probably shouldn't have made and it just <laughs> encouraged him, you know, and like that. And then the rest is history and, and Cho is probably not on top form and, you know, it's, it's like, I think it was luck, but I think... In the lead-in, um, when all that time passes and they're getting towards the match, it is said, like, Hufflepuff narrowly defeats Slytherin. And I think, like, even that, that's even more implausible than than Gryffindor. Um, oh, what are you trying to say, Eric? <laughs> I'm, not, I'm not trying to be prejudiced against Hufflepuffs. But it's like, it just seems like everybody's not on their best game or not where it should be. Yeah. Like, it seems like J.K. Rowling's It's just nice to see Ron win for a change. And yes, on his own... Is. Like on his own bearings, like he he did it himself. He didn't shocks, need Hermione's help. Me. He didn't need the twins. Yeah, what shocks me is, um, well, yeah. First of all, who's replacing the twins? Did they say that? Because yeah, uh, yeah. S- Sloper and somebody else. Is yeah. it Ginny? No, it's not. No, no. no. The... And I was going to point out the fact that this is the moment where Harry, I mean, where Ginny wins over Cho, mm-hmm. figuratively Ooh. and literally. Well, yeah. Once again, this nice. this 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 match being a reflection of the end of Harry and Cho's relationship, because um, yep. Cho also throws a fit. Fittingly, <laughs> what shocks me the most is that uh, Ron and Ron knows that Harry and Hermione weren't there to witness it. Because, like, the first thing he says from across the pitch is, we did it, we won. Like, informing them of the outcome. So I feel like it No, won- he doesn't know. He just says it because he's celebrating. Excited. Oh, my yeah. God, we won. Yay! He doesn't, he doesn't find out until the next chapter that they oh, weren't there. Oh, okay. Because which- I just assumed that if he knew that they weren't there, he would have gone to pieces again. 
Well, which is kind of the the bitter sweet thing about this is that Ron does finally <laughs> succeed at something, and Harry and Hermione don't see it. Um, it's it for for me that was kind of sad, just because this is yeah, like you said, well, like you said, Eric, this is a big moment for Ron, but. Not only do Harry and Ron or Harry and Hermione not to get to see it, but we as readers don't actually get to see it um, in action, which was for me a little disappointing. And again, another reason why we I would happily exchange <laughs> Grop for this to see this match, but unfortunately, that is how this chapter ends. But it's our it's our little kind of light at the end of the tunnel since Hermione has completely lost her head and Harry just doesn't know what to think about Grop being plopped into the forest. Um, oh, you rhymed. Good job. <laughs> <laughs> and that is the end of what may be one of the most detested chapters of Order of the Phoenix. I, I like to call it pluckable because you could just boop. You could just <laughs> pluck it right up like, like, like a tree. If you... uh-huh. <laughs> yes, much like a tree. Oh. Yes, yes. Pluckable like a tree. Okay. <laughs> that is the worst analogy ever. <laughs> Is it Grop's fault? Only if you're a giant. <laughs> he's, just, he's so big, though. It's like he's, we see him pulling trees, and we're like, "What a menace to nature that guy is!" But he's 16 feet tall. Like that's his only suitable plaything. And like Hagrid it's doesn't. It's a toothpick. It's fine. Yeah, yeah. It's like a dog carrying a little branch. Oh, and it is worth mentioning while while Rosie's putting down the question of the week that Harry is a total jerk to Ron, and is like, "Hey." You know what I was dreaming about when I was talking about the corridor? I was actually dreaming about you getting the quaffle because you suck. <laughs> yeah, that was pretty mean. <laughs> Harry hasn't been mean. mean in a while, so there's a little of that. And I, I just love that Hermione and Ron don't even comment. Ron's just like, yeah, you're right. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that's, that's a pretty good point. So our podcast question of the week this week is a bit of a difficult one. This chapter is difficult in general. Um, As we've all stated, it's a tiny bit pluckable. The actual (laughs) new information here is kind of unnecessary, but there are so many links uh, into the other books. So looking at the explorations of Hermione's character that we discussed, um, of the the twins' triumph, of Umbridge's fears um, with the centaurs, and even Harry and Cho's relationship coming to an end, is there a point to this chapter hidden between the lines? What do you guys think? Let us know. Yes, this where why why should we not pluck this tree? Give us <laughs> give us a reason. If you would like to be on the show, please visit the Alohomora uh, website where we have all of the details that you need to learn how you can do that. The website is alohomora.mugglenet.com. Uh it can be easier than you think if you have a set of Apple headphones, but not everybody has those. And uh, no fancy equipment is needed. You just need something to record yourself on, something to record into, and something to play it back and Skype. And yeah, I think that's it. Uh, oh, and a personality, yay! Uh, so visit all that stuff is on, uh, or all that stuff is listed on alohamora.mugglenet.com. And if in the meantime you just want to keep in touch with us, you can follow us on Twitter at alohamoramn. Facebook.com slash open the Dumbledore. We're on Tumblr at MN Alohomora Podcast. Of course, our phone number is 206 Go Albus. That's 206 462 5287. And Audio Boom, as you heard today, you can leave us a message for free. All you need is an internet connection and a microphone. And you can do that right over at alohomora.mugglenet.com. And please do try to keep it under 60 seconds. 
so we can play it on the show. Don't forget, we've also got our store where you can get sweatshirts, long sleeve t-shirts, uh, tote bags, flip flops, so much more. Definitely exactly what you need in this weather is flip flops. Um, <laughs> <laughs> we also have free and a bit, uh, free ringtones on our website. And of course, our smartphone app, which, as we now say, is available on this side of the pond and the other. I still prefer seemingly worldwide, but it's okay. It's okay. Whatever. Available anywhere with a flu connection. <laughs> there you go. Whatever, whatever the availability, prices do vary depending on your location on this side of the pond or the other. The app includes things like transcripts, bloopers, alternate endings, host vlogs, and more. You don't want to miss it. Last week, I sang for you guys. And it was brilliant. <laughs> it was amazing. If you guys didn't see it, it was brilliant. It was brilliant. So there are definitely... Many things on the app worth checking out. But in the meantime, we are now going to pluck this episode. It's over, you guys. <laughs> it's over. I'm Michael Harley. I'm Kat Miller. I'm Eric Skull. I'm Rosie Morris. Thank you for listening to episode 108 of A Life More. Open the Dumbledore. Is that Eric? It must have been because he's not answering. Okay. <laughs> you should have a um, just like a, a uh, what's the word? A bulldozer with beep beep beep, and then like the tree gets ripped out of its roots. That'd be funny. You could do the centaurs too. <laughs> oh, just to put me down. <laughs> if only Grop had actually picked her up. For me. Which yeah. he did not. If only that um, had ever happened. Herming. Uh, <laughs> oh, that was lovely. <laughs> All right.